This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome. You're listening to For the State, where we talk journalists and journalism. We are coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Chrysanthi Giotis. In a world where news certainly hasn't stopped, the media is struggling across the country. Long-term disruption has been turbocharged by an economy in steep decline due to COVID-19, Illustrating the seriousness of the problems facing the media this week, Bauer Media killed off eight high-profile magazine titles, putting dozens of journalists out of a job. This isn't unique. Tonight we turn our attention back to regional media. We looked in detail at regional papers in April, finding a sector in deep crisis. Papers were closing or ceasing print editions, leaving journalists out of work and communities living in the dark. But today, it's fair to say that while things are not rosy, there are some green shoots starting to show. New papers are starting to be driven by new community players and community needs. So this week, we dare to look optimistically at a part of the media under enormous stress. And we ask, is there a road forward with new community models for local papers? Also, what role do papers play, as in actual physical paper, play in local communities? and why we all should care about the survival of local news. To help us in this important discussion, we're joined by an experienced panel from well outside the big smoke. Eliza Burledge is a senior journalist at Narracourt Community News in South Australia. She has also worked for Wimmera Mail News until it closed down. She has worked for The Conversation, researching and producing a podcast with Michelle Graddon. She has been a freelance journalist and also spent time here at 2SER, working on various programs, including the national current affairs program, The Wire. Eliza, welcome to Fourth Estate. Hello, pleasure to be with you. We've also got Michael Ellis, who's the managing editor of York Peninsula Country Times, also in South Australia, a paper with over a 155-year history and almost unique in Australia for being family-owned all that time. Michael, pleasure to have you on Fourth Estate. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. We've also got Susanna Framark, who's the editor for Richmond River Independent in Casino, New South Wales. Before that, she was the editor of the Richmond River Express Examiner. She has a long career in the media, including being social media and education editor at News Corp Australia. She's also a novelist, and her book, Losing February, is out through Pan Macmillan. Susanna, welcome to Fourth Estate. Lovely to be with you. Okay, so thank you, everyone. I'm really excited by this panel and the cross-section of experiences that we have here. So this is the situation. With News Corp and Australian community media in retreat across the regions, we're going to take a timely look at the different generation of media barons with different models of delivering the news. All three of our guests have a unique story to tell, and I want to start by asking about your papers and what makes them special. 
I'm going to start with you, Michael. York Peninsula Country Times, unlike the other two papers we're going to talk about, is not new. It's very well established. It does have a history behind it. Why do you think it survived when so many papers have recently closed? Well, the, the York Peninsula Country Times started as the Wallaroo Times in February 1865. And we still produce a paper every week. We've got a staff of 20 committed people in our team, including six in our editorial team. We attend every single thing that's on York Peninsula and report on it. So I think we are vital for the needs and the communication of the community. And I think that's the key. There's no secret. It's just plain hard work. You've got to get to every single thing. So do you sleep much? <laughs> People die in bed. It's dangerous. <laughs> so, no. Eliza, if I can turn to you, the paper you are working on is not 155 years old. Tell us about Narrakut Community News and how it came about. Sure. So, yeah, Narrakut Community News is much, much younger. We're, gosh, I think we started up in May, so we're only a few months old, but we're definitely um, punching pretty hard and sinking our teeth into things. Um, but we we come from our um, establishing sort of founders, uh, Michael Waite and Richard Peake, have a long history in Narrakut. Um, so Michael Waite's mum, Sue, worked at Narrakut Herald for decades and uh, Richard Peake, who was our other founder um, was one of the former editors of the Herald and his his dad used to work there too. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, experience in the community there. But yes, we are quite a baby compared to the other, some other papers. Eliza, can I can you just tell us about how you came to work at the Narrakot Community News? Yeah, so it was it was pretty um, much really lucky timing. Um, I had been stood down from uh, the Wimmera Mao Times, which is a ACM publication. Um, I was on leave at that stage and, yeah, I was pretty worried that we wouldn't come back. I mean, that's generally the trend. Um, so I applied for a number of jobs and one of them was this new Narrowcourt Community newspaper. Uh, and it definitely piqued my interest. So I threw in an application uh, and then a few phone calls later with um, the editor, Michael Waite, and um, uh, was there yeah, sort of starting up while I was um, stood down from the Mail Times. So, yeah, jumped on board sort of, you know, thinking maybe I'll go back to the Mail Times when they came back. Uh, but when, when the Mail Times came back, I thought, you know, look, working with a startup seems so exciting and, and fresh and new and, and really embodies a lot of the, the values I, I have with news construction and the future of news. So um, I decided to stay. Fantastic. Okay, we'll come back to those values in a second. Um, we might just introduce Susanna because your paper, the Richmond River Independent, is also a startup running on a different model from the two privately owned papers we've just discussed. Could you tell us about why the Richmond River Independent has set up as a not-for-profit and uh, reached out into the community for funding to make it happen? Well, I think when the News Corp Act fell a month ago, it was pretty harsh. Uh, we were all quite shocked how quickly the papers just disappeared and not even a digital presence. And it was in its 150th year this year. And a group of um, residents in Kyogle were really angry. I mean, a lot of people in the town were very upset. And they got together and asked if I'd be editor if we could get a paper going. And to be honest with you, I'd never had any desire to own a newspaper, but being the editor of a country paper is the best job I've ever had. I love it. Um, so they formed a community association so it's uh, it's managed by a management committee anyone who lives in the area can join the association 
and myself and four other people do the paper each week and we just put out our third edition last week. But the main reasoning was that it could never be taken away again. So one day when I retire, they can get a new editor, but no, it can't ever be sold. That's amazing. That's an interesting proposition, isn't it? So it belongs to the community now. Is yes, that... and so what's great is I'm still, I'm doing basically the same job I did with the Express for five years, but I really feel like I'm working directly for the community and not for Rupert. And to be honest with you, it's fantastic. Does it feel different in any way? I mean, I, does the community feel like they have more of a right to, to talk about editorial direction or something like that? Well, they've always been in the area I'm in, Kyogre and Richmond Valley Council areas. They're always pretty vocal about <laughs> what they do and don't want in the paper. So I, I don't think that's changed. They're, they're very good at stopping you. I mean, they, they lean out there. They toot their cars like when we, we got the first edition out and we're going, good on you. I mean, they, and they tell you when you get something wrong. So um, they've always been a very vocal readership. That's excellent. Oh, that actually brings us to the next thing that I wanted to discuss, which is in the regions you cover these big stories that are happening right now. So COVID-19, you know, in Sydney, everyone's talking about masks and clusters. Um, but are, in the regions, are the readers' concerns different? And, um, for instance, you know, are you looking at bushfire recovery, water, jobs? And is that something that you really feel you have to connect deeply with the community to, to be able to do properly? So yes, you do have to connect with them deeply. It's... Um we're doing a lot on bushfire recovery because we had the horrific fire in Ratville in October 8 last year, and that's still going on. Like, I've got a story this week about how the council's doing rebuilding Ratville, and obviously a lot of the bushfire recovery got lost in COVID. I also think COVID here in the country is very different to the city. Like, you don't see a lot of people with masks, and you can keep your distance. So I think you're just connecting with the community all the time, and that's the, that's the great part of the job. So you get a sense of what, I suppose, what's worrying the community, what they're looking for. But it's the same issues, but I think they play out very differently in a, in a country town. Michael, can I come to you? What are you guys, uh, what are you doing to keep the government on its toes in terms of bushfire recovery? We, basically, before I answer that, our philosophy is if it doesn't happen on your peninsula or hasn't got a connection to your peninsula, it does not go in the paper. So everything in our newspaper is local, local, local. That's, that's our main focus and there's no other news organisation covering our area. So that's what we do. As for keeping the uh, government of the day honest with bushfire recovery, we did have a bad bushfire down on southern York Peninsula and we have regular updates, interviews with all tiers of government about the programs they've got in place and what they're doing and how they could do it better. As for your previous conversation about the community, country journalism or country newspapers is very answerable to the community. I get very direct feedback. For instance, tonight I'll go to the Kalina Footy Club for a beer and I'll get unending advice on how to write stories better or what should be in the paper. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> Um, Eliza, can I come to you? What's front and centre? Like, what's on your news agenda today? Yeah, so absolutely, as Michael said, um, Narracourt, um, what for a Narracourt community news, again, we're very hyper-local. It's got to have either Narracourt or one of our surrounding towns involved. Um, and that's been especially a focus because um, we popped up, I forgot to mention before, when Narracourt Herald, which was also an ACM paper, was also pulled off the shelves and suspended. Um, which had been printing since 1875. 
but there was a lot of um, frustration in the community while we've been pretty lucky um, in not having a lot of bushfires um, and some townships near us like Katiara Council um, which is just slightly north of us have had issues with drought we're generally a pretty fertile farming community so while we haven't faced as many natural disasters uh, in more recent years one of the biggest I guess sort of disasters or, or tragedies has been the loss of, of local news. Um, when the Herald left off, a lot of the stuff they were printing was really syndicated from across the state rather than being hyper-local news. So people just didn't feel like their community was being reflected. So what we're really trying to do and what we people have been saying they love is that we're really trying to build the community both in terms of civic engagement and understanding about local council processes, budgets, um, uh, you know, just how people get approved for grants, you know, the who's who and what what, but also, you know, really looking at what makes the community tick, you know, how businesses are being supported by JobKeeper, you know, how many people we've got a story about JobSeeker at the moment and that's actually, you know, almost doubled in our area. So, yeah, just really reflecting uh, the concerns and the goings-on. Um, even had a story about 80 years of friendship of a woman in our area with an Adelaide woman. So, yeah, I think that's been the biggest one. People just want to see themselves in their paper and feel like they'll be better informed by reading the paper. So, Eliza, you actually touched on a really important point there, that, that syndication. So people, even though News Corp and Australian Community News own the vast majority of local papers at the moment, that wasn't always so. And there is sort of a feeling that, well, maybe they were slowly killing that local vibe by too much syndication. Um, is that something that uh, is really still relevant when especially a lot of people get their news from social media today? Do you think that that local element of the newspaper will save the paper? That's what we hope and that's what we're banking on at the moment. So even our um, team of angel investors are all um, local business people who really want to see the community news take off because the print model, you know, even though ad sales in print media you know, isn't isn't the complete money maker it used to be. There still is value in it, and we're also still trying to prove that there is value in hyper local news. And I think it's something that COVID has shown us is that you only really can find out, you know, about whether you know whether you're in Sydney or Melbourne if your suburbs in lockdown, or you know if you're in a certain state or certain area. Restrictions can really vary, and the way that local councils handle COVID can really vary and the way that people support each other can really vary. So that information has to be really specific and it has to be timely and it has to be trustworthy. Um, and I think that's something that people are really, really feeling that they're getting from Narrow Community News and it sounds like from these hyper-local places, uh, these hyper-local outlets. And also, I guess, as well, um, the refocus on print. So we don't have any digital content at this stage. We do do a PDF version that people can look at of our paper um, and so what we're trying to do with that is to make sure that everything that does come out while you're not going to get that breaking news update you will really get a comprehensive picture of what has been happening in the community we just simply can't compete on that level but we can really sort of give people that in-depth um, understanding of what's been happening and why if that makes sense. So are you telling me that you don't do any social media either? So we have a Facebook, but it's mostly just for updates about our team and the paper. But yeah, at this stage, um, our journalists are solely focused on putting out a great paper. Um, we do have an older community, which is another reason why um, this strategy is working so far. 
um, you know, we're not ruling it out in the future of expanding to having a digital presence. But at the moment, by having a print edition um, and it just both the print and the digital edition, which is a PDF version, being, you know, $2 each or you subscribe, it really focuses people to look at the value of news. You know that that paper is $2 rather than people are very confused about digital subscriptions and we're still trying to explain and revalue news because so much of it was and has been given away for free for such a long time. Wow, so this is really a new model flying in the face of what's been done in the past. Susanna, can I get you to comment on that? What do you think of this? And what are you well, doing with digital? Well, we, we have, a, again, we're only on our third issue. We have a um, website where we have the paper but also stories. Um, anything that's not timely, I will save for the paper. Anything that people need to know now or in the next few days, I will put on the web. Um, we have a really strong Facebook following, which as a journalist... Facebook can save you a lot of time because, you can, I mean, we have a very engaged audience. So if I go on there, there and say I'm looking for such and such, someone will get back to me or if I need someone's number. So I find it actually saves me a lot of time, Facebook. Um, I want to be in all those spaces because I've found what we put in the paper is quite different to what we put online. So, like, on Facebook today I had to put a story about someone, uh, a man accosting two women in casino. Now, that, by next week, that story, unless we can get a new angle on it, is a bit old. So that might or might not feature in the print edition. So I try to sort of um, check the timeliness of it and when people need to know that story. Michael, what do you think about social media and digital news? How does that work with your model? So before there was a word used, which I think is important in our newspapers, is the word trust. People trust our news is accurate and fair and balanced. For instance, when COVID first hit, I and before JobKeeper and all that was announced, I immediately put our cover price from $1.70 to $2. And the overwhelming feedback we got were you were too cheap before. But wow. people are prepared to pay for the news. For our digital, we have a um, PDF version, as was discussed before, which we sell at the same price. We have a website which has a couple paragraphs or a paragraph of each story, major story, leading to the paid edition. That's how we operate. We have a Facebook page. We sell 7,000 printed copies a week and we'd have 14,000 Facebook followers. Mm. So that pans out for us. So I guess I'm, I'm going to ask a question. At the moment, Two companies have bundled together most of the titles. They're giant media conglomerates. It's probably too early to say if this model is dying. I mean, obviously, ACM don't think it is. They recently invested in the model. However, they are uh, struggling in, in many places, as we know, changing, going more digital. What do you think are any advantages to being part of a of a large media conglomerate? So, for example, are you more likely to have an IT department um, or even things like if you get a really good story, is it going to be picked up and go national if you're part of a conglomerate? Um, Michael, uh, can I start with you? What do you think? Well, clearly we're not part of a conglomerate, never have. We, we've got a stable of one masthead. It takes all <laughs> my time and energy to keep track of that. I guess there are advantages, but I think the big conglomerates have lost their focus on the local issues. For instance, they're doing the syndicated stories, as I said earlier, and, and not getting to every event in the community. 
think the independent titles or the community-owned titles are doing better because they've got skin in the game. They're in the community, living in the community, answerable to the community, and therefore produce the best product, which is reflected in the sales of the, the cover sales and reflected in the advertising sales. In fact, our people, our readers call it their paper. I see them. I see in our paper this week, it's like they own it. They feel part of it. That's a big difference. That is a big difference. And we've talked before on Fourth Estate about how important local papers are to giving that sense of community. Eliza Mm. and Susanna, I'll come to you too. Um, So, Eliza, can I get you to answer from the point of view of a journalist? Do you see any disadvantages having gone to a smaller independent than when you were part of a conglomerate? Yeah, look, absolutely. There's pros and cons. And for me, it's been um, quite a a shift in my mind of the difference of doing something that's completely hyper-local and not, you know, able to be, have, you know, a story picked up nationally. It's it's a buzz when your story gets picked up nationally, um, of course. But, you know, I hope that um, I think that if a story is big enough and good enough, you know, that people will see it and, it, you know, we will get people picking it up and sharing it. Um, and I think that's what's really important is, you know, if it's a story that needs to go national, it will. And um, I still have a really big Twitter presence. And if I really wanted to blow something up, I'm sure I'm sure I could talk to some people. Um, you know, that's where you still, I believe that, you know, I've got colleagues across the country just because we don't work at the same masthead. I think we're all working off into the same cause. But anyway, coming coming back to your um, particular question, for me, the biggest shift was thinking if my, my stories aren't going, you know, as part of a big stable and can't go national, then my focus becomes that I am writing for the community or for people that absolutely have connections in the community. And that really kind of changes things compared to before I was writing for the community, but also sort of a bit like a foreign correspondent. Sometimes I was writing for the possibility that, you know, people around the country might read this and need to know it, if that makes sense. Mm. might be wearing two different hats. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it is a different mindset, isn't it, and a different skill as well and a different uh, responsibility as well when you know that you are going to be there for a long time in that community and need to answer to them specifically because you're getting really into the details of it. Susanna, as an editor, do you see a difference, you know, pros and cons of the of the uh, syndicated mastheads versus the the independent? Well, the two things that are really different, of course, when I did the News Corp Express Examiner, we would have a recipe page from Taste, which was syndicated across all their titles. So now what we've done to replace that is we've got on board all the local CWAs and we've called it Food for Thought and they submit a recipe. We've got a wonderful, funny column like an agony aunt called Ask Odette and they've also got a space to write a bit about their cause. Um, So we do that every week now and, of course, people love it because it's now a local recipe page as opposed to a syndicated one. And in terms of being a journalist, I I don't care whether my story's picked up nationally or not. To me, it's about telling the story here right now as best I can. And, of course, when I worked for News Corp, the push for subs was um, really hard. Like, you had to get a certain number of subs each week, and I know that's even gone up since since I left. And so that means, you, you, you know, to get those stories, you did crime, you did court, you did Chris Hemsworth at Byron Bay... And you couldn't tell a lot of those other stories that mattered to the community because you didn't get the clicks. So I found my job was changing and the reason that I was doing it 
I was losing that by staying with News Corp. So I'm happy to just tell community stories as best I can. Wow, that's fantastic. I mean, that really sounds like actually newspapers are refinding themselves. And actually, if I can just stay on this idea of newspapers, um, all of you are actually in print, and print has some unique qualities when it comes to access, especially across age groups and socioeconomic lines. Um, in a way that, you know, a mobile or website app can't, especially because when you're signing up for a digital, digital subscription, you don't actually know what you're buying. So it's a big risk for someone who doesn't have that much money to spend. Is it time that we recognise that print plays a role in protecting the most vulnerable members of society? I'll start again with you, Michael. What do you think? Well, print is vital. We work very hard to retain our print readership and circulation and I think the decline of printers in our area has been overstated a little bit. We we actually are an afternoon newspaper. We might actually be the last one in the world. I'm not sure, but we print at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and we have 20 or 30 people lined up at our print shop to buy it off the press. We have the schools around the corner, all the cars pull up, the kids run in with their $2, grab the paper, run out. The print is in our area is still very quite strong. And I think people value it. And the reason we're an afternoon paper is you can take home and engage with it rather than pick it up off the front lawn in the morning and have to get to school or work or whatever. You can actually take it home, put the kettle on, have a cup of tea and sit down and engage with the newspaper. And I think that's a key element of our model. Before I let you go, Michael, I've heard you say in the past that you have a rule that the paper has to go thud when you put it down. Tell me about that rule. So uh, a lot of our newspapers are home delivered by the news agents and I don't want them to be eight pages and float down in the breeze. They've actually got to hit it. The person inside has got to hear it, hit the driveway out the front. So it's got to make a thump. So they get a good value read. So we never publish below 48 pages. as well. We might have the occasional 44 pages, but normally 48 pages or better. So then everyone gets a good read and it makes a thump when it hits the ground. That's my rule of thumb. That's fantastic. Uh, Susanna, can I come to you? Do you think that print has unique qualities when it comes to access, especially for more vulnerable people? Well, I think it obviously is an advantage. And by the way, I like um, I like Michael's story about the FUD. I always, my test is that people say, I get a cup of tea or coffee and I sit down and read the paper, which they tend not to do when they're looking on Twitter and online. You, d- you tend to do that as you're going about your business. Whereas print it offers you that time to sit down, relax, read the paper, have your cup of tea. So that's what people say they like. And our, our paper is actually delivered by the community. Um, we don't deliver to home because we found that a bit complicated at the moment. So we have 10,000 copies and every Wednesday morning when it's delivered at Casino by the local ag shop, the tractor, they've got a forklift driver, they do that for us. And then the community delivers it. And we find the same thing. We find people outside the news agents going, I'm just waiting for the paper. And I mean, I'm even helping deliver it. So I always say it's an extra extra personal delivery from your editor. But I think that it's, it's even what Michael said about the thud. I'm hearing when we're talking, there's a lot of those sort of visceral words that you don't get online. You know, you turn a page, there's a thud. You know, it's the, it's the physicality of holding it. And I think that is good for older people, but it isn't just them. People say why they love the paper is it connects the community because everyone's reading it. Whereas online... You're not all reading it together. There's something about when the paper comes out, you walk down the street and you see people in cafes reading or carrying it and they're doing it together. 
And there's something quite powerful about that. I don't quite know how to describe it, but it's like we've all got our paper, we're all reading it, and we're doing it together. Eliza, do you think that there's something to be said for the paper because you read a broader cross-section of articles? Like you might read an article that you might not have read if you were getting tailored algorithmic news delivered to your feed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like I'm, I'm such a digital millennial, but I have always really loved the exercise of reading the paper because you do go a bit beyond, you know, where your absolute interests lie. There's more for that yet serendipity of, oh, maybe maybe I should have a look at that one next to it. And, and that sort of reading cover to cover, whether it's over breakfast or lying in the sun on the beach or, you know, sitting by the river, um, you know, it becomes a ritual. Um, and, you know, people still do watch appointment TV sometimes, let alone um, still do listen to, you know, whether ABC Conversation Hour or Fourth Estate. So I think, yeah, there really is that wonderful um, connection and bringing people together. So we've had a great discussion about how newspapers act as connectors for the local community. The other role that local papers play is that of a watchdog. If something dodgy is going down at the local council, it's the local rag where you'll probably hear about it. And not even that. I mean, when I was a local council reporter, the best compliment I ever got was when I was leaving my weekly paper and the mayor said to me that they read the council papers more closely because they knew they were going to get a phone call from me on Monday morning. So <laughs> if we can uh, if we can have a bit of a think about this role that local papers play, there's um two pieces of research out of the United States, which I think are important to to discuss here. Actually, I'm going to talk about three pieces of research. One is that most freedom of information requests from local papers actually uh, focus on departments which are not focused on by the metros, and that quite a few major stories happened from freedom of information requests from local papers. And the next is that the loss of local News led to polarisation and a breakdown of cohesive communities. So you get more polarisation when you don't have that local paper. And the other is news deserts. And so there was a study which the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission was uh, relied on in its findings where in these news deserts you have statistics which show that the cost of local government goes up. So I guess if I can just go to each of you, if you can tell me what you think of the role as a watchdog and whether you have enough resources to do that role. Do you think it still exists? Um, Eliza, I might just come straight back to you, actually. Can you get you to start this time? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, yeah, as you were saying, I we've certainly heard that as soon as our paper comes out on a Wednesday, the chief executive of our council goes into his office and, and takes the paper in and pours over it, which I think is a really good sign. Um, as well as the community lining up at the newsagent. Um, I know that, yes, absolutely, as you're saying, if you don't have local papers there, you know, knocking on doors, being at meetings or, you know, just local media in general, there is a sense of complacency. And, you know, it's not always that there's outright corruption. Sometimes there is, but sometimes it just often is that there are, you know, there could be intimidation or, you know, a lot of favours, um, which still does mean that, you know, things aren't always being done quite quite by the book um, and that people often just don't understand and maybe are a little bit apathetic. So I think that's a really important role is when you're reporting without fear or favour, it's not always that, you know, you have to have the smoking gun 
It's just chipping away bit by bit and saying, we see what you're doing. Some of what you're doing is great, but maybe maybe some of some of the works that you know councils are doing, just explain it a bit more, be a little bit more transparent and accountable and communicate better to the community and to the media. And that's certainly something we've been working really hard at. Michael, can I come to you? What do you think about this watchdog role? So in our circulation area, there are three councils and we have a journalist assigned to each council that goes to every single meeting and uh, we report on it. And I concur with the previous comments, someone, and it's almost a role of keeping them honest rather than exposing corruption. They, they don't do it. They, and we have an excellent relationship with all three councils and regular meetings with CEOs and mayors on a monthly basis and stories along those lines. So I think our role is a somewhat of a watchdog role and I think we keep them on track. I have, though, heard the opposite argument that, you know, local papers are too cosy with the local mayor, for example, and that sometimes there's an outgroup in a local community that doesn't get uh, looking in the in the way that the local community is represented in the paper. Have you ever struggled with that? Do you, have you ever has that ever been raised with you? So certainly that can be brought up. It's hard not to know the mayor in a small country town. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah. Uh, so we do that and there are splinter groups from time to time and ratepayers organizations and and uh, organizations like that but they all get their free co- their equal coverage in their paper if they've got a if it's just muckraking something different but if if they've got a legitimate story about a legitimate concern we certainly cover that and attend their meetings as well and do you find that you have enough information to Oh, do you find that you're, you've got a staff of six, so that's not bad for a country a paper. Um, do you feel that the mm. journalists do get enough time to to do investigative work? So to my way of thinking, people buy the newspaper for news. So why why big organisations are cutting their newsrooms seems, seems silly to me. I can't quite work it out. So... You've got to have the news in there. We've got quite a strong editorial staff. Um, we had a lady retire last year and I was in the midst of putting on a cadet when COVID hit. So we would like to maintain our staff levels in the newsroom. In fact, the word news is an acronym for information from North, East, West and South. That's how the word news began. That's what you've got to do, get everything North, East, West and South in your area. So... If you ask our team, they'd want more people, but I think six is a fairly strong number and they lose a bit of sweat during the week because they go to work pretty hard. <laughs> I certainly have a smaller team here compared to the Mail Times, but we're also about half the, the size of population. But one of the things that's been really huge um, that Michael focused on is we have three, sort of three and a half journalists and one and a half ad sales people, whereas in a lot of um, other papers, it's the other way around. The focus is on on the sales, but you know how can you be selling things if you don't have you know the amount of people to produce the news, which is the actual product. So that's yeah a really big important thing that sort of is being addressed by some of these independents. I think that's an excellent point. So you're listening to Two SER, where we are discussing the fourth estate on the program, the fourth estate. We're talking about regional papers and the watchdog role that they play. 
We have uh, actually lost one of our editors. So we've lost Susanna Fraywood, who is the editor of the Richmond River Independent. Um, That's what happens sometimes on radio. We do have one last question that I will get our two guests remaining, Michael Ellis, who's the managing editor of the York Peninsula Times, and Eliza Burledge, who's on the Narracourt Community Paper, to answer this last question. So when we looked at regional papers in April, the situation seemed pretty bleak. I'd like to end by asking whether you two feel more optimistic about the future and not just your local papers, but local papers in general. So can I get you to answer both of those questions, please? Certainly April was a very bleak time. We uh, Revenue took a massive hit in April and we're fighting our way back. Um I, we have publicly stated that we're going to publish every week humanly possible. I want to c- carry on. I think there's green shoots around. I think the industry, which is the second part of your question, I think we should compliment the Narracourt News people. What a fantastic story to have a go at that. I know the Peak family. And they were owners of the Narracourt Herald previously and um Richard Peake and my father were quite friendly. I know them. They're good newspaper people. I know the Waits as well. So what a great story to have a crack at that. And I think that shows that there is future in our industry. Fantastic. Eliza, can perfect uh, segue to you, actually. And it's uh, it's wonderful to to hear and be on the the same panel as someone like Michael, who is also an SA. Um, I'm from Sydney originally and being in Canberra and Victoria and coming across to SA you know, it's such a beautiful and, and valuable but often overlooked part of Australia. And I think one of the great opportunities that we have with, you know, legacy papers like um, York Peninsula uh, Times, sorry if I got that wrong, um, yeah, and, and the Narracourt News, you know, coming into the field is that we can continue to strengthen all across our state, um, better, you know, better local government coverage, et cetera, because we, we have been, I think, other than WA, We've definitely been one of the states that has lost a lot more papers um, compared to other states. We definitely have um, more news deserts um, and we don't have some of the scrutiny that places like Victoria have with Know Your Council. But I think, you know, between legacy papers holding fast and continuing to print and new green shoots like ourselves, we can hopefully continue to build that and, you know, deliver better news for the whole communities across South Australia. What a great note to end on. So I'd like to thank Eliza Burledge, Michael Ellis and Susanna Fraywood. And thanks to listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you're subscribed to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a few things in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockerell. My name's Chris Anthony Thanks for listening.